0: All right, church, Romans 8. 18 through 25. If you have your copy of God's Word, find Romans 8, 18 through 25. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. We've got some on the table in the back. So as you're leaving today, grab one of those. If there's someone that you know uh, that might need a Bible, feel free to take one of those as well. We love getting God's Word into the hands of people. And so please feel free to take one of those. Um, we are going to be continuing our study in the book of Romans, the study that we're calling Foundations of Faith. And we come to one of the greatest chapters in Scripture this morning as we're continuing to slowly work our way through Romans chapter 8. Now, this uh, sermon could kind of be summarized in a math equation, which I will admit is very risky because I have not historically been great at math, Uh, so much so to the point that I actually had to have a math tutor for most years that I was in high school, but the the woman that tutored me in math was one of my fellow classmates and she is now sitting on the front row right here and i married her so yeah that's right so who's the dummy now right uh it was all a part of my plan am i really bad at math uh okay let's get serious so we're digging into romans 8 18 through 25 and the equation that paul is going to give here is that your future glory if you know Christ, is greater than your present suffering. Your future glory is greater than your present suffering. He gives us this truth in Romans 8, verse 18. And what we're going to learn is that understanding this truth has a way of deepening your trust in God as you patiently wait to see this hope worked out in your life. That in fact, this gives you the ability to trust God with an eternal perspective, looking to the future whenever you are facing present suffering. Uh, To give you a a little bit fuller explanation of what I mean in saying this, you could summarize the whole passage like this, that because God is good and always works works things for our good, our future glory is greater than our present suffering. This is grounded in who God is, because God is good, because God is always working things for our good. We know that our future glory is greater than our present suffering. Now, as we work through the concept of suffering this morning, I want to begin by admitting that there is a spectrum of suffering, right? So the human experience is one in which we are well acquainted with suffering of some kind, and we all experience that in different ways. So someone's suffering might be that they are a middle school kid that doesn't feel like they fit in with any of their classmates, and maybe that's even because of their faith, and so that's kind of a struggle for them. Suffering could be a chronic illness that is just kind of difficult to live with. Suffering, for some people, might not be physical suffering. It could be emotional suffering or relational suffering. So maybe you're in one life stage, maybe you're single and you wish that you were married. Maybe you are married and it's a difficult marriage and you wish that things were different. Uh, maybe you don't have kids and you're praying that God would give you kids and that hasn't happened yet. And that's difficult. That's, it brings emotional suffering in your life. Maybe uh, there is some sort of relational strife. It could be that, that an event has called, caused suffering in your life. A tragedy that you didn't expect that dealt with someone that you loved, or maybe a house fire or something like that, that, you know, crippled you financially. I don't know what your suffering is, but we all face suffering. Some people even face suffering when things seem to be going well. Maybe you've experienced this. Things seem to be clicking right along in your life, and you almost feel as if you're coasting, and yet what happens? Worry begins to creep in. Fear creeps in. Anxiety creeps in because you're thinking, all right, when's the shoe going to drop? Like, when... Will this present ease that I'm facing come crumbling down? And then you kind of begin to spiral and and you face suffering in that way. Because of this broad spectrum of suffering, we will never graduate from needing to return to verses 18 through 25. Like we will live the entirety of our lives until we see Christ face to face in the context of verses 18 through 25. And so here we need to be reminded that our future glory, for those who know the Lord, our future glory is greater than our present suffering. Now, as I said, we're diving into Romans 8. Romans 8 is such a great chapter. It's kind of in this section of chapters 6 through 8 where Paul is talking about our sanctification. So if you know Jesus, then now he is conforming you to the image of Christ. You're growing because of the grace that he has shown you. And that brings about change in your life. Now, Romans 8 specifically shows the way that the Holy Spirit is working in your life. It begins with the declaration that if you know Jesus, there's no condemnation for you. You're fully accepted by God because of the work of Christ. And it ends with the truth that there is no separation for you from God's love. There's nothing that you could do because you know God through Christ. That's why we come to Romans 8 and just say, this is such an amazing book. That's such an amazing chapter. And what we'll see over the next two weeks is this is almost kind of like a, a two-part uh, sermon. So this is, this is part one. Next week is part two. So today we're talking about our future hope in the midst of suffering. Next week we're going to talk about our present help in the midst of suffering. Uh, so imagine suffering kind of like this giant backpack that you're wearing in, in, in the human existence. right? so you've got this giant backpack, and if, if you're a Christian— what this passage is going to do is it's going to remove some of the biggest weights in that backpack, right? So maybe you've got like the fear of like not knowing what's coming one day. And so this passage is going to kind of pick that big weight out. So it's a little bit lighter. Another weight that it's going to pull out of that giant backpack of suffering for you is the understanding that right now, if, you're, if your body's imperfect and I mean, you're facing difficulty relationally and you keep falling back into sin, it's, hey, we're going to remove some of that stuff. And then next week is is going to come alongside you and kind of say, hey, some suffering is just not gonna be be removed until you see Jesus face-to-face. But there's present help to endure. This is a long journey, and so the Holy Spirit is in you. Jesus is beside you, helping you along in this journey. And so we're gonna read verses 18 through 25. And in these verses, you're going to see a comparison. The comparison between your present suffering and your future glory. So you may want to jot that down, that verses 18 through 25 show you a comparison of your present suffering and your future glory. If you have God's word, let's go ahead and uh, read these verses. We'll begin in verse 18. Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time Are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see it there, don't you? The present sufferings, the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Future glory. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is God's Word, and what we see here is that our present suffering pales in comparison to our future glory. You see, here Paul is kind of fleshing out what he said in verses 16 and 17 preceding this. He says, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. How do we know that we are truly children of God, like we talked about last week. He says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the way that a Christian deals with suffering, whenever you're suffering and you continue to cling to Christ— say my identity is in him, my peace is found in him, my joy is ultimately rooted in him, that has a way of giving you great assurance. That actually has a way of proving to yourself and the world that you are genuinely following Christ. And so what we find in verse 17 leading into this section is that suffering in the Christian life is not just an obstacle on this journey, but can actually be a pathway into the presence of God to know him deeper. Charles Spurgeon, the the preacher in the 1800s, once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Wow, what if we could say that? That when suffering comes, we would be able to say, I have learned to kiss the waves when storms come that throw me against the rock of ages, that I would know God better. Oaks Church, verse 18 is your comfort that in present suffering, as real as it is, that it cannot compare to your future glory. Think about that. One day, you will not struggle with sin anymore. Uh, One day, you will be reunited with the Christian loved ones that you have lost. If you're a parent and you've lost a child through miscarriage, one day you will hold that kid in your arms. That that one day, Jesus will wrap his nail-scarred hands around you. And you will understand that fullness of joy that David talked about in Psalm 16 like you could never imagine. When this future glory is revealed, it will be like a fog that vanishes in the sun. Your suffering will disappear. It will be a distant memory. So we cling to this hope. And yet we still deal with attention, don't we? There's suffering now. God is good, and yet we face suffering. Why does it seem that that things should be better than they are? Why does it seem like there's so much broken in the world that we live in? Why does creation groan, as Paul says? Why is it waiting eagerly? Why, why is it futile seeming at times? Why is creation groaning in the pains of childbirth? What we find in this passage is that present suffering is the result of past sin. Present suffering in our lives right now is the result of past sin. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're, and you're not a Christian, and, and you're thinking, how do you make sense of, of everything that happens? How do you make sense of, of hurricanes and, and things that seem wrong in the world? Maybe you're here, and you're a Christian, and you're kind of wrestling through some of these questions with a friend, with a family member. Well, what this passage will show us very clearly as a response to those questions is that present suffering is the result of past sin see creation is groaning now as paul has just said but it hasn't always been that way do you remember how genesis 1 starts it says in the beginning god in the beginning god and and this teaches us so much about who god is we want to begin with who god is and we've already said kind of in our main point that god is good he works things out for good What we learn is God already was when creation began, when he set creation in motion. There's never a time that he was not, which that tells us that God isn't dependent upon anyone. He is self-sufficient. And then the verb comes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we see God's goodness on display because On display because he he speaks the stars into existence. He sets the seas where they need to be, shows the water just how far it should come. He's, He's declaring that everything would be, speaking ex nihilo out of his immeasurable power. And what does he say every time? It is good. The refrain rings out almost like a chorus in between every single verse, and God is saying it is good. It is good all of creation was reflecting the glory of its creator and therefore it was good. Then God created man and woman and declared that it was good. Everyone was holy and everyone was happy. Everything was wonderful in God's good world. And so what in the world happened in between Genesis 1 and Romans 8:19? What took place? We see the language in this passage, and verse 19 tells us that creation is waiting for renewal. Why? Verse 20 tells us that all creation has been corrupted and subjected to futility. Verse 21 tells us that creation is now in bondage. Verse 22 tells us that it groans for the day of redemption. What went wrong? What do we read in verse 20? The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope. It's a familiar story, but it's essential to be reminded of what took place in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Because God, in his love, set boundaries for those that he created. He set limits for Adam and Eve. He gave them the entirety of the Garden of Eden, and yet he said, Don't eat of this one tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? The serpent came. The serpent tempted Eve. Eve and Adam disobeyed God. And in the moment of their disobedience, sin entered into the world, and destruction and death became the new norm. And whenever Adam's sin entered the world, creation was subjected. That's what verse 20 is talking about. The Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Although it was Adam's sin, God subjected creation to futility, for it to not be able to, to function as it was designed to, as a just consequence for the sin of Adam and Eve, for doing exactly what he promised would happen if they were to eat of this tree. He describes it in Genesis three seventeen through 19. He spoke to Adam, and, he, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Not just fruit and flowers as before. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Death, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. There's a lot there, but what we see in this moment is that all creation was subjected to futility. As Genesis 3 says, the ground was now cursed. Instead of just bearing flowers and fruit, thorns and thistles would often take its place. It would be hard work. Uh, God says, Adam, what were you doing? You just stood idly by. You're not loving or, or leading this wife that I gave to you as husband. You're just let this happen, and then, and then you took part yourself, and this is the consequence of it, that all creation would be subjected. Here we reflect upon the truth again, that present suffering is the result of past sin. And we know that to be true, don't we? We can't just shut the book and pretend like this truth stopped in Genesis 3. No, the reality is that we experience present suffering too. Maybe you've had a conversation with someone and they've asked, well, why do we suffer? Why does suffering take place? Maybe you're sitting here wondering, why do we suffer? In the specific is that we suffer presently because of three things. Sin's curse, sin's conflict, and sin's consequences. How do you describe our present suffering in these three ways? Sin's curse. Creation is broken. That's why it groans. Like a dislocated shoulder that is in pain until it is set right. Creation knows how it was supposed to function and is personified here in these verses, groaning that it would be set right and working properly. Creation is broken. I mean, many of you know, two summers ago, I was, you know, doing some yard work and uh, I got into, you know, these vines and weeds. And what I realized a couple days later is that it was poison ivy. And that was a bummer Uh, to quote the urgent care nurse. I had the worst case of poison ivy she had seen that summer, which is not an award you want to win at the urgent care. And so, you know, as I am coating my arms and legs with aloe and then wrapping them in Saran wrap uh, so that I don't scratch them and break the skin, I'm reminded that all creation is cursed, right? That, I mean, these are beautiful. Like places like the grand Canyon exist. And yet, we know that creation is groaning because it has been subjected to futility. The, the curse of sin is present. And, and you should know this. I think sometimes we might have the same sentiment that the disciples had in John 9, where they see the man that is born blind, and they say, well, whose sinned? Was it him or was his parents that it would be this way? And Jesus said, it's so that I would get glory. It's so that you would see my work. It's so that you would see me on display. And I think that's so important to understand that we live in a world that is broken by sin because some people think that all of their suffering is because God is mad at them. If that's what you're thinking this morning whenever you face suffering, could I, could I free you from that? We're going to talk about sin's consequences in a minute, but you know, our bodies don't work like they're supposed to. Like, life is hard. The world doesn't work as it's supposed to, and And if you think that you always face suffering because God is in some way mad at you, then it will keep you from running to God in your suffering. You'll run away from Him. But if you understand that uh, God has the ability to, to groan with you, and would this reality free you up to run to God in your suffering, realizing that until we see Christ face to face and until He makes all things new, we will always experience the effects of a broken world? And so sometimes our present suffering is the result of sin's curse in the world. Sometimes it's the result of sin's conflict. We see this in Genesis 1 through 3 as well, don't we? Because before the fall, before sin entered in, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. They had this great relationship with one another. They're walking with God in the garden. And yet what happens when sin enters in? They make fig leaves. They hide from one another. They begin to blame one another. Then they hide from God. Sin brings conflict, doesn't it? And some of you have experienced that firsthand. Maybe you're experiencing it this morning because you have been sinned against by someone, and that has brought present suffering in your life. Maybe you've sinned against someone, and that has caused suffering in your life or the life of another person. I want you to understand that you might be facing suffering right now because someone has sinned against you. It could be physical or verbal abuse. Maybe someone has impossible standards of you, and you feel like you never measure up and what this passage will do is say, hey, regardless of what has taken place in your life, you can now relate to God as an adopted child. That's a great thing. Others of you, you, you experienced sin conf- conflict because you are an instigator in sin's conflict. Maybe people feel like they have to walk on eggshells around you because you're just kind of always ready to snap. Maybe, maybe other people experience kind of this reciprocity that has, has no place for the people of God, where, where you would kind of say, well, yeah, I mean, I, I, of course I would treat them like that, but I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't show that kind of love or, or affection toward me, so why would, I, why would I lead out with that? Or, you know, they, I mean, they haven't asked for forgiveness, so why would I try to mend this relationship? And so we just kind of, we're in the middle of sin's conflict. We, we look at other people and think something like, well, I mean, I'm not really getting anything out of this relationship, so I'll probably just like not really be committal here. And these horizontal distortions of, of relationships that sin's conflict has brought points to a greater reality, that there is a vertical relationship that has been broken. We see this in Isaiah 59 too, don't we? Whenever we read these words, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear that could be why you are facing present suffering because you are made to have a personal relationship with God and your sins have separated you from God. And you, and you believe the lie that somehow you have to work your way to him or you have to get on his good side. And what the gospel says is Christ has done everything needed for you to have a relationship with God. In fact, he removes that sin by taking it upon himself so that you can have a relationship with God so that conflict can be over. So sometimes our present suffering is the result of sin's curse, sin's conflict, also because of sin's consequences. So, yes, we are, we are born with a sin nature. Everything has been subjected because of what Adam has done. And yet, we also take personal responsibility for sin in our lives. Like, we know the collateral damage of our own lust or our greed or our jealousy. Like, nobody has to convince us that sin has caused suffering in our lives, right? And yet, sometimes God uses this really graciously, Sometimes God uses suffering in your life. Maybe, maybe you don't know him right now, and you feel like you're kind of in a tight spot, and God is using suffering in your life to reveal to you your own insufficiency. Like, that's the story of so many of us in this room. Some of us were crippled by an addiction to the point that we realized we needed a help that was outside of ourselves, and it is Jesus. Others of us we're so exhausted by trying to keep up the charade of being self-righteous and pretending like we have it all together that we just crumbled before God and we're like, I can't do it. Like, you got to help here because I'm like at my wit's end. And we fall at the feet of Jesus. Well, that's a, that's a gracious thing whenever God brings us to that point in our suffering. And even in the Christian life, we're constantly dependent upon the Lord because we constantly face suffering. It's a good reminder. But the Lord also... Uses the sin that is in our in our lives to lovingly discipline us. He's a good father. He's not just going to let us. Okay, oh oh, you're saved. You know the Lord. Well, go live however you want. No, he's going to continue to lovingly pursue us through his discipline. That's why Hebrews twelve six says this: For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Do you feel like you're being loved when you're disciplined? Maybe not. I have kids. I don't know if they always get it whenever I'm disciplining them. And yet, why do we discipline? Well, we want to bring a little bit of pain in the moment to prevent greater pain in the future. Wow, this is a really big deal. Like, we don't treat people like that. We don't talk to people like that. You know, this isn't good for you. This could lead to, to worse. We want to bring a, a small consequence in the moment so that there isn't a greater, more damaging, permanent consequence in the future. So it might be timeout, it's like, uh, you know, a pat on the butt, a spanking, I can say that, right? Taking away screen time to to bring a little bit of pain, a consequence in the moment to prevent something more harsh in the future. And God does that too. Hebrews 12, 6 says that as a loving father, he disciplines us. So we say, hey, that's not best for you. I know what's best for you. We suffer." Because all creation has been subjected, but get this, on the same day, on the same day in Genesis 3, whenever God gave this curse, whenever he he said, hey, all things are going to be subjected to futility, he also gave a promise. He told the serpent, he told Satan, he made a promise to him, and he said, there will be one who will come from her line. And he will be a deliverer. This is Genesis 3.15. This is called the first gospel, the proto evangelion. And he says, there will be one who will come from her line and he will crush your head. He will crush the serpent's head. And although his heel will be bruised, the cross, he will be victorious, the resurrection we see that Christ took on the full weight of our suffering. He took on the full curse of sin. Do you remember what was on the brow of Christ whenever he went to the cross? It was the crown of thorns as the king who reigns. He put this physical depiction of all of creation's curse on his head so that he could go into the grave putting sin and suffering to death and then raise again and say, I rule it all. I've set death in the grave. And yes, you will face present suffering, but it can't compare to the glory that is to one day be revealed to you. And because the tomb is empty, we wait in hope. I love those two words at the very end of verse 20. But because of him who subjected it in hope. If you're a Christian, this is as bad as it gets because God is doing something that you would not believe You can read Revelation every single day until you see Christ face to face and you will not fully comprehend just how great this future glory will be. Paul compares it in verse 22 to childbirth. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. There is present suffering in all of creation. In the same way that a mother during those nine months experiences the the difficulty maybe of forming a a child in their womb and then you you feel contractions you go to the hospital and you put all of that work and suffering into bringing this child into the world you're groaning with labor and then what happens you hear the cry of that child the doctor places that child in your arms and if you were to ask any mother in that moment was it worth it say absolutely absolutely. The present suffering that they might have felt was worth every bit of what was to come, and what Paul is saying here is that in our present suffering, we can have hope that one day we will experience a future glory, and it will be completely worth it. You see, because of what Christ has done, we have a future glory. When you see the second movement in this passage, the future Glory that we experience is the result of Christ's past work. Future glory is the result of Christ's past work. See, Paul is honest about the present reality of suffering. And to the person who's sitting here, maybe thinking, well, what is God doing in the world? What is God doing whenever there is so much suffering in the world? Well, Paul will say, God is doing something. God has been doing something since Genesis 3.15. We heard that promise not only is God doing something, God has done something. God has done something by sending his own son to become a curse, as Galatians 3.13 said, to reverse the curse of sin and to set all things right. And this is why we can wait in hope. How, How can we wait in hope? What is this hope that we wait in? The fact that one day all of creation will be completely restored that one day you'll be able to flush all of your pain meds down the toilet because you won't need them anymore. Your knees will no longer creak, that you will no longer struggle with temptation to sin. We wait with hope as does all of creation. So now we cling to the fact that God is working out his full plan of redemption and we have just the first fruits of it. Here's the truth. We have a future hope in our bodily resurrection and creation's restoration. What is our future hope, if we were to, just to define it? In our bodily resurrection and in creation's restoration. Verse 19 tells us that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Well, what is creation waiting for? Well, creation is waiting for Christ to return… And for us to be bodily resurrected because creation is almost personified here knowing that on the day that we are glorified on the day that our bodily bodies are restored on the day of our resurrection that creation too will be made new that it will experience a complete renewal and so creation is eagerly waiting for the revealing of the sons of god now we've talked about this before whenever we say sons of god what are we saying we're referring to both male and female who know the lord now I've used the same joke about this for the past like three weeks and some people have already made fun of me about that. So I'm gonna bypass the joke about me being the bride of Christ and ladies having to be the sons of God and you get to tell your neighbor if they weren't here last week, you know. So, So here's the deal. Male and female are referred to here by Paul as the sons of God because he's writing to Christians in first century Rome and because males in the home, adopted sons, received a greater and better inheritance than the daughters did. Now, here's also what I want you to realize about this, is that in first century Rome, what the gospel has just done through the pen of Paul is elevating the status of women in that culture. So we're not differentiating here. No, we're saying both male and female are full heirs to the promises of God. This is one of those promises that every person receives as a son of God, be it male or female, is that their bodies will be glorified, that one day they will be raised to new life and be completely restored. Verse 21 says that creation awaits that day, whenever Christ returns. We see a beautiful picture of this in Revelation 21. John is is looking into the future, and he writes this, he said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order, the way things are now of things has passed away. He who has see, who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Jesus looked at John and said, hey, write this down. Because people sitting in the MRC rec center in Cincinnati, Ohio, need to be comforted by these words. That Regardless of what present suffering they are facing, the future glory that is to be revealed is the promise that Christ is seated on his throne right now. And that one day he will return and make all things new. And in that moment, the groaning of the earth will be hushed and replaced with a song of praise that Christ, our awaited King, has come. If you're a Christian, you can look at the world with great hope. You can rest in the fact that whatever you're going through, the Lord is good. He's working it for your good if you know him and are called according to his purpose, and that one day he will return and your suffering will be finally over. Things might feel slow or uncertain at times, but you can trust the Lord. As I was thinking about this this week, I was actually reminded of uh, whenever I had braces. So those were fun years. And, uh, you know, my, my time wearing braces was about two years, which felt two years too long of, you know, like, trying to get Cheetos out of those things after lunch every day. And uh, it's, it's a light to suffering, uh, right? But if you've experienced that, you know, the whole time you're thinking, I wish I could speed up this process. Like, this, this is annoying. Like, I want to chew gum again and all of, that, all of that stuff. And you wish that that would be like a two-month process, don't you? But you go into the orthodontist every week knowing that they know more than you do. And so they're, they're tightening, they're tweaking, things, things are beginning to shift. And over the course of those two years, what you find is, well, things now look a lot different than they did before. Now, what if you were to go in and just say, Hey, I want you to make it all happen in just two months time. Like, I, I don't care what you know, just do it. Well, what you would find is that it would break your teeth. It would cause a lot of pain and suffering. Maybe your jaw would even be broken or, or your face deformed or, or something like that. Now, let me use this silly example to reiterate the truth. If, if an orthodontist who's just a man knows the, the pace that things need to shift and move to bring about something better, how much more does God know the pace at which things should happen in our life As we experience suffering, as He is conforming us to the image of Christ, as He is preparing us for the day that we will see Him face to face, how much more trustworthy is He as we experience a little pain here, discomfort here, unexpected circumstance here, knowing that He is working things to draw us closer to Him? And what do we read here in verse 23? That it's not only the creation that's groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says we have the first fruits of the spirit. That's a, that's a farming term. So whenever a farmer walks out and he sees that first orange on the tree and he pulls it off and he peels that orange and he sinks his teeth into it and the, the citrus is sweet. All so this first fruit is showing me that there is something greater That is to come. And Paul says, Here, you have the first fruits of the Spirit. And so, what what has happened is God has released you from the power of sin, but one day you'll experience the rest of this fruit, which is the removal of the full presence of sin in your life. You know God's presence now as the first fruit, and one day you will know it even better. You experience this first fruit. But what happens right now? We groan inwardly. I think this is important for you to see. It is not a sin to groan. It's a sin to grumble against God, but it's not a sin to groan. You can actually do that. You can approach God with your sadness, your frustration, your confusion. Those moments where you're saying, God, I I believe, but help my unbelief. See, the difference between groaning and grumbling is that groaning is coming before God and saying, Lord, I know that you're good and I need help. I need eyes to see, Lord, would you help? We groan inwardly now. The difference is grumbling is saying, God, do you know what you're doing? It's, it's doubting God's character. It's coming to God and saying, hey, if I was on the throne right now, I wouldn't let this happen. I know better than you. That's the difference between groaning and grumbling. And as Christians, we can groan to God. Yes, 100% we have joy and we trust God's plan. And yet we can approach him knowing that he is good. That's why I had Laura read the book of Habakkuk in, in chapter three, because in Habakkuk chapters one through three was my devotional, like in my devotional time, if you're going through the reading plan, like two weeks ago. And it was so good because... At the beginning of the book, Habakkuk is like, hey, God, what's going on? Like Babylon is about to come and destroy Judah. And, you know, why would you do that to your people? And he's just kind of talking to God, questioning God. And by the end of that book in chapter three, he says, though though the fig tree doesn't bear any fruit, and though all of the sheep have left the pasture, I don't even know what's going on anymore, God. I will rejoice because you are the God of my salvation. He is brought near to the Lord. We're we're told that about Christ, right? That, That he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, that he suffers so that he can understand our suffering. Jesus is so good that he is one who will not only die for you, but cry with you. What if your emotions are actually invitations into the presence of God? So whenever you feel anxiety or worry or anger or confusion or sadness, instead of self-medicating, instead of just saying, you know, I'm going to fill my time with so much entertainment that I don't have to think about what's going on in my life. What if those emotions can actually be invitations into the presence of God, to know him deeper, to know Christ as the one who not only died for you, but the one who cries with you and is near. You see, in, in verse 23, we're told that we are awaiting our adoption. And I know that can be confusing because last week we said we are completely adopted. But what Paul is saying here is there is a fullness of your adoption when your body is fully redeemed that you will experience that you have not yet experienced. And we are children of God. I have to admit that one of the most difficult things as a parent is, is watching your child suffer. And I know that as I say that, uh, my, my children face light suffering compared to even people in this room or people that I know. Um, but but I, I pray earnestly and often that my two-year-old son would not have to wear glasses, uh, that his eyes would be completely healed. And, uh, you know, you see him like running across the playground and he's, he's happy, but he's like, you know, scooching the glasses up. And then whenever he cries, they fog up and his little chubby fingers become like windshield wipers underneath it. And he's like, <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm like, I, I pray that, the Lord would completely heal his eyes. Is, is just something that, like as a dad, I just, I, I feel that. And at the same time, I wonder, like, what, what is he learning that he would not learn if, if he had perfect eyesight? I pray that he would learn that true joy does not come from 2020 vision, but that it comes from the Lord. I, I pray that, that he would learn that, like, a good life can be lived in the presence of God, whether it's seen through lenses or not. And and if I can say that as a dad with a finite perspective, like how much can the Lord say, yeah, I'm gonna allow this thorn in the flesh. I'm gonna have this suffering exist so that you would realize I'm where true joy comes from. Like you can trust me in your suffering. Maybe it is that God wants to show us whenever he is all we have, that he is all that we need. And we experience that in suffering. And I also know that one day my prayers will be answered. That for those who know the Lord, their bodies will be completely healed. That the blind will see. The crippled will dance. That the Lord is bringing about a restoration and renewal that we could not even imagine. So what do we do in the waiting? We hope. That's what verse 24 tells us to do, and then we'll wrap up. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What do we do now? We wait with patience. This isn't an empty hope, like hoping it won't rain. This is knowing that this is certain what the Lord is going to do. I I love the way that the Christmas hymn, Joy to the World, puts this. Isaac Watts writes about the redemption that Christ will bring by saying this, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, comes to make his blessings flow. How far? Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as far as the curse is found. Because of Christ, the curse of sin is not final. When Christ returns, he will chase down every ounce of sin and suffering in this world. There is not a cave or cupboard that will be left untouched by the restoration power of Jesus. And so we wait. The question how do we remain faithful in the waiting? A couple quick applications for you. We wait patiently with our community. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, Proverbs 17, 17 says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. God has given you a church community to suffer alongside. If you don't have one, I would love for the oaks to be your church community. If you've ever seen sequoia trees in the West, they, you know, they're famous for growing over 200 feet tall. And what you might not know is their, their roots only extend about 6 to 12 feet in the ground but they go out about 50 feet and, and they find their strength by, by pulling on one another. God has designed the Christian life to act in the same way, that you would suffer well by suffering alongside others, by others would, others would be able to suffer alongside you. If you're not connected to one of our missional community groups, there is a seat on my couch this Wednesday at 6.30 that is for you, a seat at my table. And the other 10 missional communities that we have would love to extend that same invitation. If you're like, you know, I I have a lot of questions. I've I've never really talked to a pastor about any of these things. I don't don't really know where to get started. Our starting point class is a great way to do that. Come next week, 9 o'clock, we'll be in the art room. But we were designed to suffer patiently in a community. We also wait patiently with compassion. We should be compassionate for other people that don't know the Lord in their suffering. Like, if that's a personal experience for you, I want you to know my heart is broken for you because I don't I honestly don't know what I would do if I didn't have a God to talk to, if I couldn't run to the Lord, knowing that He is good and He holds all things in His hand. If that's you, I want you to know this God. The God who literally sent His own Son to die for you, that you could have a relationship with him. You were created to have that relationship with God that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. And it has been broken by sin. You have been separated by sin, but Christ did everything in his death and resurrection to bring you near. If, if you're someone who's a Christian, I pray that we would be compassionate. I mean, there are so many things that we can fill our lives with in this world that have a temporary impact. And yet serving others, sharing the gospel will last. On the day that Christ returns, we wait patiently with conviction. I think some of us don't know how to suffer well. So we need the conviction that God is sufficient and that God satisfies more than sin. Because I think so much of our present suffering and sin in our lives is because we don't know how to suffer well. So we're bored, and so we just kind of binge watch TV and fill our minds with garbage. Or we feel lonely, and so you turn to pornography or just kind of binge watch, you know, something. Or or you're just like, you know what, I'm just not going to think about anything, so I'll I'll self-medicate. Maybe you don't understand that part of suffering and dealing with discontentment is actually being happy for other people whenever you see God at work in their life or blessing them instead of being jealous of them. But we, su- we suffer patiently with conviction that God is greater, that he satisfies, and he is greater than our sin. And finally, we wait with confidence. We wait patiently with confidence, knowing that God keeps his promises and he kept his promise that he made in the garden. He even foreshadows what he would one day do through the work of Christ by killing an animal in the garden and replacing the fig leaves that Adam and Eve created with the skin of an animal that died in their place, to ultimately point to the fact that one day he would send his own son to atone for sins and to clothe us in righteousness that we could never create for ourselves. Jesus took on flesh, died in our place, and rose again so that we could have life in his name. Therefore, we know that the Lord has not only suffered for us, but that he suffers with us. Isaiah 53, 4 through 5 says this, that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. See, Romans six twenty three tells us that the wages of sin is death. And the gospel tells us that Christ suffered death in our place, that we could have life. So in your present suffering, do you understand that your future glory is greater? Do you know this God? Are you clinging to this hope? May we know that because our God is good and because he's always working things for our good, our present suffering cannot be compared to the future glory that is to one day be revealed. Let's pray.